Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. This week, we bring you a story from the world of opioids. Undergraduate seniors Matt and Blanton set out to understand how buprenorphine can help in the fight against the opioid epidemic and all the ways that scientists are using chemistry to make opioids less dangerous. So here's episode eight, Outsmarting Opioids. Good morning, fellow scientists, non-scientists, and woke listeners alike. This is Matt and Blanton coming at you hot and live through the airwave to speak to you all about opioid overdose treatment. As many of you know, our country has seen a drastic increase in the use of opioids, and so we wanted to shed a little light on how two drugs are making an impact on this epidemic. So when most of you hear opioids, you're probably thinking one of two things. Either drugs to get you high like heroin, or painkillers like oxycodone. One is associated purely with abuse and has a lot of negative connotation, while the other has been prescribed by physicians for pain relief. The thing is, these are actually pretty similar drugs. Alright, so opioids have this thing called analgesic effects. Most of you people know this as pain relieving effects. At one time or another, we've all depended on these effects to relieve of small pains like headaches or muscle aches. But depending on the drug and its dose, for example, high doses of Vicodin, they can cause over-signaling and a rush of dopamine in the brain. Many opioid abusers are looking for this kind of effect and describe it as a euphoria or pretty much a high. While there are a lot of different mechanisms in the body that work together when a drug is introduced in the body, our mu receptors are mainly responsible for responding to opioids in our body. So, when I said both of these drugs are pretty similar, I meant that they both act on these mu receptors in the brain and in the body. And this is actually why most heroin users, about 80% actually, started out on prescription opioids. And about 20% of all opioid prescriptions are abused in some fashion, with about half of those leading to dependence. However, opioids are still used often in medical fields to relieve pain. And for the most part, this has caused a lot of controversy. As a result, we saw almost 50,000 opioid overdose deaths in our country in 2017, about 40% of them from opioids available for prescription. Medical professionals aren't oblivious to this statistic and practices are shifting away from using opioids and instead using things like combinations of ibuprofen and naproxone or physical therapy to treat pain. But in the meantime, we still have a growing epidemic of opioid-related overdoses. And it's growing quickly, with deaths almost doubling over the past few years. The shift in medicine away from the use of these opioids is the biggest concern, but luckily there are also ways to help those currently struggling with opioid use disorders. When someone has an opioid use disorder, which is basically just the new name for addiction, it's hard to focus on anything other than getting the next dose. Historically, these people were told they had to kick the habit on their own or with help from a sponsor. More recently, the medical profession has actually taken up ways to help themselves. Towards the start, most opioid recovery programs are relied solely on methadone as a maintenance drug to treat addiction. Maintenance drugs are medications that usually require regular daily use in order to keep away withdrawal. Now, if you know anything about methadone, it's also an opioid, which then makes you wonder how we're treating opioid addiction with an opioid. It's kind of similar to fighting fire with a fire. Yeah, and methadone has actually seen some success, and it's been reported that about 25% of people on that treatment will achieve abstinence. 
and another 25 will reduce and limit their amount of opioid intake. And while it's not 100% recovery, it was a treatment that allowed individuals to reach normal living. And it worked well until people started taking advantage of this treatment. They started selling methadone on the streets for a pretty penny. The reason methadone worked at all was that it was much slower acting than things like heroin or fentanyl. It was distributed in clinics where people could get a single daily dose to hold off their withdrawal symptoms without getting high. The problem came when people figured out how to abuse the system. So today, methadone overdose deaths, by some estimates, account for a third of all opioid-related deaths. Of course, many people, physicians and patients, were using it responsibly. And a lot of people got their lives under control with this therapy, but the dangers were still very high. So then researchers were like, oh man, if we only had a drug that could help treat opioid addiction, didn't have the abuse potential and euphoric effect of methadone, maybe we could call this a partial doer? Maybe a half-protagonist? No, that doesn't sound right. Um, yeah. Well, the thing is, there is such a thing, and it's a drug called buprenorphine. And it got approved for prescription use to treat opioid use disorders in 2000. It's a partial agonist of these mu receptors that we mentioned earlier, so it still binds to them, but it doesn't have all of the same effects. With buprenorphine, the tolerance develops very quickly to things we typically associate with opioids. So the analgesic effects, the euphoria, all that go away in people using this treatment within a few days. And buprenorphine actually binds really tightly to those receptors, so that's how it's able to keep away withdrawal even though it isn't giving the same effects. When the researchers noticed this, they fought really hard to get it approved for a treatment of opioid use disorders. It took over 30 years after they first discovered it, because as an opioid it is still dangerous. But when they did get it approved, it grew to actually replace methadone in a lot of places. Doctors who went through the training program to prescribe it could give it in week-long prescriptions or more, so people didn't have to go to a clinic every day. That helped its street use to not be as bad as methadone. Medical researchers were even smart enough to add a drug called naloxone that in case someone would snort it, it would cause individuals to enter withdrawal. So while Jane Doe was trying to get a quick high, she was really just feeling anxiety, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Up till now, we've been discussing ways of how to treat opiate addiction in the long term. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about this drug that is actually designed to help people who are having an overdose in real time. Naloxone was approved by the FDA in 1970 for the primary purpose of reversing opioid overdoses. Normally you'll hear people refer to the overdose as respiratory depression, and that pretty much just means that there's an overwhelming amount of opioid in their system and the brain stops sending signals to breathe. What naloxone does is that it goes in and kicks out those opioids at the mu receptors and pretty much gets the brain back online. Alright, let me get a little sciencey on you guys. Naloxone is able to do this because it's a non-selective competitive antagonist. Now, those words are a little technical, but if we break it down, it's actually pretty simple. Non-selective just means that naloxone does not target a specific receptor. It targets the whole group of opioid receptors, but mainly that mute receptor we mentioned earlier. Imagine shooting a shotgun. Those bullets are going to go everywhere, but they're all going in a similar direction. Now, that's different from a selective drug, which would be similar to a sniper. With good aim, you can hit your target straight on. Competitive just means that naloxone has the ability to outcompete with opioids at the mu receptor. Imagine this, you're playing basketball and you're going up for a rebound. Because you're taller and have longer arms, you're able to compete for the ball better than, let's say, someone who's short. 
In a similar way, naloxone can compete with opioids for that mu receptor and binds tighter and faster than its opioid counterpart. Finally, antagonist means that naloxone is not doing any of the same things that the other opioid drugs cause in your neurons. So in an overdose, if you're not breathing, naloxone stops this from happening in your body and gets your body breathing and moving again. However, there is one drawback to using naloxone in overdoses, and it's naloxone has a very short half-life. A half-life is the time it takes for your body to clear out the majority of a drug in your body. So naloxone's half-life is about 20 to 30 minutes. And typically opioids often have half-lives that can be as long as an hour up to two hours. And this is bad news because it means that one dose of naloxone might not be enough to treat an overdose. Because of this, it's not unheard of for someone to administer naloxone, have a person regain consciousness, and then soon fall back into another overdose. Medical professionals are aware of this, so small and constant doses of naloxone are recommended following an overdose. Despite that drawback, naloxone has saved countless lives and has been hailed as a miracle drug, which is great news. Not only that, but at the turn of the century, medical professionals realized that if they could combine naloxone with buprenorphine, they could make a treatment for opioid abusers. When the naloxone is combined with buprenorphine, it's usually called suboxone which was the first approved combination by the FDA. The other ones are like Zubsolve, but Suboxone is the most common. The combination of Naloxone Safeguard with those partial agonist properties makes Suboxone a lot safer than Methadone. Studies found that it was just as effective for patients in terms of preventing relapse and things like that, but it had less potential for abuse. The key word there, however, is less. And that less is very important. On the one hand, this treatment is an improvement and is helping a lot of people get their lives back together to live normally again. And it's important to remember that most of these people needing this therapy need it because doctors gave them opioids in the first place. But on the other hand, buprenorphine still has its dangers. Reports of children accidentally swallowing it and dying of an overdose began popping up. As its prescription use grew, people got smarter too and figured out how to abuse it. People figured out that if you've never taken opioids before and don't actually have any tolerance, then you can get high off of a single dose of Suboxone all day. Because it binds so tightly, like we mentioned earlier, it can give a really long-lasting high. So this aspect of it that makes it more helpful for those that need it also makes it more dangerous for those who abuse it. A New York Times report gave the example that beaches in New Jersey have problems with young adults getting an all-day high on buprenorphine. And then, some prison populations have figured out that the sublingual film form of it can be dissolved on pages of the Bible they're allowed to keep in their cells in order to hide it from the guards, and those pages can then be eaten later for the high. Another big issue is that the regulation of these prescriptions is hard. Most clinics are doing the best they can to help people, but some don't require urine drug screening to make sure the treatment is actually being taken by the patient. This allows for the chance for people to sell their doses and keep getting them. Doctors are required to go through a training course in order to prescribe buprenorphine, but even that isn't perfect. Research has found that the rates of doctors who have been disciplined for malpractice are much higher in the group that has been approved for buprenorphine. This drug makes a lot of money, so it's possible that some of these doctors are prescribing too much of it to try and financially save their practice. And then the stuff is getting out to the public and isn't being used properly anymore. All of this was made worse when Subutex got approved in 2009, and all that is is buprenorphine without that naloxone safeguard we talked about. It had been used for pregnant women before that since the naloxone component was harmful to a developing fetus, 
but now it's being prescribed as a cheaper alternative to Suboxone. This helped people who needed treatment but couldn't afford it, but it also worsened abuse. So basically, even though buprenorphine is better than methadone in a lot of ways, it still causes a lot of problems. But that's where something new comes in. If medical professionals could take away the ability for Suboxone to circulate around on the streets, then they would have control of where and when the drug is being taken. Most Suboxone treatments are done with sublingual tablets and are taken in daily doses under the supervision of a doctor. After multiple visits to the doctor, they can increase prescriptions so people come in less often, but even more recently, a better solution happened. In 2017, just last year, the FDA approved a treatment of buprenorphine that is formulated for depot injections. So what that means is they give it in a shot into a part of your body with some fat below the skin. It slowly leaks out from those fat stores that everyone has into your blood. And with this treatment, people only have to get treatments once a month. And there is no possibility of it getting sold on the streets. Birth control medication has been formulated successfully in this way, and it's widely used too. Not only does this make the treatment less abusable, but also makes it more accessible. Current treatments require individuals to take daily sublingual tablets. Compared to this new treatment, you'd only have to go in once a month and get this injection and the treatment would last the entire month. Now, for someone who has limited access to medical attention and professionals, this becomes a game changer. Now they can seek recovery without having to spend a lot of time in hospitals or clinics to get treatment. And another added benefit for abusability is that when people are on this, if they did take other opioids, they would not get nearly the same amount of effect. This is because of how tightly the buprenorphine binds to those mu receptors. It can actually block out other drugs like heroin from getting to the receptors to some degree. A recent study comparing subliquin tablets and depot injections found that depot injections were equally effective in treating opioid-addicted individuals. That's great news. This means that medical professionals have access to a treatment option that is pretty effective and limited abusability. In this study, 428 participants were split into the two groups. One got the injection, while the other took the buprenorphine naloxone drug like Suboxone. With the injection, 35.1% of all the urine samples that came back were negative for other opioids, meaning the patients had stayed clean. In the buprenorphine naloxone group, 28.4% of the samples were clean. These were not statistically different, but at the very least, the injections were doing just as good as the sublingual films to help people stay clean. Because those numbers may sound low, it is important to point out that similar kinds of studies comparing buprenorphine and methadone have found that about 60% effectiveness were both in preventing relapse, so it may be found to be more effective than it was in this study under different circumstances. Hopefully, since this is something that shows a lot of promise for patients, it's something that can make a real difference for those affected by opioid use disorders. Combining this safer treatment with other social support elements are a step towards tackling the opioid abuse epidemic. It's still very new, so we hope to hear more good news about it as its use grows. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast, and as always, we have been great. Club Corps is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville. This episode was researched, scripted, and hosted by Blanton Gillespie and Matthew Barrera as part of a neuropharmacology class project during fall 2018. Blanton and Matt did their own recording with additional sound engineering by me, Angel Core. Jessica Fox wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNC Asheville Audio Studio, and thank you for listening. 
You can find show notes, including links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com podcast slash episode eight. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time. <laughs>